Amen. Thank you very much. Here's Ashley. Uh, as, as Paul and Dave have both said, my name is Tim, and I'm one of the uh, leaders here at the Vine Church. Paul, um, sorry, I'm moving around because I feel like I haven't got much room. Um, you know, they sometimes call people uh, tennis preachers. Have you heard that phrase before, tennis preachers? Because you're constantly going backwards and forwards with your eyes. You know, in tennis games, you go backwards and forth. Everyone's looking at me quite blankly. Okay. Um, but this morning, as we've already said, that we are carrying our series looking at God's name. And this is taking us right up to Easter. Uh, we are having some pauses. We had a pause last week for Mission Sunday. And if you missed that, please do uh, check it out on the website, on the podcast. Uh, and we're taking a pause for Mothering Sunday because we're going to do a little special uh, service sermon for that and other things as well. So we're taking a couple of pauses. So it's going to take us up right up to Easter, 10 weeks altogether. And uh, we also, we produce some booklets. And if you haven't got a booklet, do get one there at the back. And that booklet is really just meant to help us to journey through this together. And it's got questions, it's got a thought in it. And so please do take that and take advantage of that um, as well. But when you're thinking about God's name, it's quite an interesting one because uh, I just want to do a little bit of a recap to kick off with because we missed a week. Because when uh, you've got the people like David in the Bible, and David declares, you know, God is compassionate or gracious. You know, even Dave said this morning that God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, you know, rich in mercy. But what then who warrants us to be able to say these things about someone else? Because if I was to say something about uh, someone else, maybe uh, Becky or my children, you know, I would get to know their character. I would speak to them or I might speak to uh, potentially other people about who they are. But what warrants them? And actually, when we come to these, many of these passages of who God is and his character, we find it that they're speaking about Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. I wonder what comes into your mind when I say the word God. I've asked this question over many weeks, but what comes into your mind? Is it, a, is it an actual image of a person? Is it Jesus? Is it a character trait of God that he's a father? Or, or is it someone who's he's an all-powerful being? Or it might be even someone I don't even believe in. But what comes into your mind when you think of the word God? So let's just do a recap. The book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is a remarkable book. It, it's a book of God basically saying, I want to save my people. I want to rescue them. Many of us will be in the story of Exodus where, you know, uh, the, the people are in slavery. They're in bondage. They're living in fear and they're suffering. And God says, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to take you towards the promised land, a place where you would experience liberty and freedom, where you experience a time where you can truly worship your God because they couldn't truly worship their God in, uh, in Egypt. And he chooses this guy called Moses, one of the most famous characters of the Bible. And it was Moses that would be there when the deadly plague come in. And he'll be leading the people. It'll be Moses that would lead them through the Red Sea. And he takes them through all this time. 
it's reckoned that it was about two million people he led. Two million people through all this time towards the promised land. And that is basically Exodus chapter 1 to verse eight, uh, chapter 18, sorry. And then we get to uh, Exodus 19. And the people, they're at Mount Sinai. They've walked around the desert for a bit. They're at Mount Sinai. And God has a conversation with Moses. And he says to Moses, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And he's going to make a covenant with the people of Israel. And he says this. If Israel, my people, obey the terms of the covenant, they will be shaped by the laws and the teachings, and they will become a kingdom of priests. He's saying, if you follow my covenant, you will be my nation, and you will, you will know me. You will be a nation of God, the people of God. And he goes even further, he says, other nations will look towards you to see who God is. So Moses goes down from the mountain, and all the people are like, yeah, we sign up to that. We want to be the people of God. This is Exodus uh, chapter 19, by the way. We want to be the people of God. The next thing, on the mountain, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's a cloud. And Moses is up there again. And we find in Exodus 25 to 31 chapters, we find that God wants to have a place where he dwells with his people. So he gives this blueprint of what a tabernacle should look like, a place where God would dwell and meet with his people. So he's saying to his people, oh, you, I will make a covenant with you, and you will experience me. You will know my presence in this tabernacle. So from Exodus 25 to 31, we get the exact blueprint of what they should build this tabernacle like. But something goes wrong. Moses takes too much time, apparently, up the mountain, finding out about this tabernacle. They're, they're getting annoyed at Moses. He's, he's taking too long. They want something or someone to worship. So what do they do? They go to Moses' brother and says, could you build us a golden calf? And they start worshiping this golden calf. Uh-oh, they've done something wrong. Because one of the bits of the covenant, i.e. the Ten Commandments, was not to worship any other gods. So they started worshiping gods. So as you can understand, God pretty much gets angry and he's annoyed at the people. But Moses says to God, don't. Don't forget your promises to Israel. What will other nations think if you destroy Israel? And God graciously says, I will make a new covenant with my people. And then we get to Exodus 33. This is a, a quick run through Exodus. Exodus 33, uh, verse 18, which I spoke upon in week one. And it's Moses having another conversation with God. And he says to God, please show me your glory. He's saying to God, I want to experience you more. I want to know you more. I want to see another side of you. And this was the guy that had you know, seen many miracles. He's seen God through a burning bush. He's, he's heard the audible voice of God. But he wanted to know more of God. And God said to him, my goodness will pass before you. And actually, week one, I spoke about how we should, we should want to experience more of God. You know, what was yesterday or last year or two years ago, that's, that's before. You know, we want to know more of the presence of God like Moses did. And then Exodus 34, and God is having another conversation with Moses. 
and God passed before Moses. And this is where we get to Exodus 34, uh, verse 6 and 7, if you want to find it in your Bibles. Or it should be up on the screen. And this is the passage we focus on. See, Moses, he's he's known God. He's he's seen God do different ways and different works. But then he hears God say this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, or some translations say merciful, and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. See what's going on here. God is revealing his own character, his divine nature. God, in many ways, saying, this is who I am. This is my name. This is remarkable because because of this, we can actually say God is slow to anger. He is compassionate and gracious because he said it himself. I'm I'm not quoting someone else or someone 100 years ago. I'm quoting God himself. This is how he describes himself. And last, not last week, sorry, two weeks ago, I spoke about the development of God's name, the Lord, the Lord. How actually Genesis 1, you know, right at the beginning of time, in the beginning God, God, Elohim in the Hebrew. Elohim means a creator God. And that's how they saw God, as a creator God. He created things. Didn't know his character, didn't know what to expect from him, but they knew he created things. And then we we jump to Genesis chapter 17, and we find uh, that God says, He's an almighty God, Al Shaddai. He was the the most mighty, better than any other gods there is around. And then we get to Exodus chapter 3, and we see a burning burning bush. And God says, I am who I am. Is this this remembrance people think? I am who I am. And then we find that I am, I am, I am who I am is actually Yahweh, which is actually the Lord. And then Jesus declares he is the Lord. That, that was a quick recap of what is going on here, hopefully. But do catch the podcast if, uh, or online if it's a bit too uh, quick for you. But this morning, I'm going to be speaking to us upon the second line, compassionate and gracious God. The compassionate and gracious God. Imagine, imagine this. That you are living in ancient Near East, 1500 BC. Imagine that. So men, you might have some long hair, big beards. You know, you might be better tanned than you are right now, uh, definitely for me. And you are a Hebrew, formerly a slave in Egypt. And now you are living in the desert around Mount Sinai. The place you live is spiritually charged with various gods and goddesses. And these gods are anything but nice. These gods that the place where you live, they're mean, they're unpredictable. You don't want to get on the bad side of them. They're ready to fly off the handle at any time of frustration. 
So you, you make sacrifices. It starts off, you sacrifice a, we say a bird, and then it goes up a bit to a goat. Let's get a bit meaty. Let's sacrifice a boar. But you do it to keep the gods on your side. You don't want to upset these gods or goddesses because they will bring disaster on you. They will bring more suffering, more pain. You are in fear of gods. However, the Lord Yahweh, I am who I am, God comes and rescues you. He saves you out of Egypt. He takes you through uh, the Red Sea. You survive the deadly plagues. And now he's giving you food and drink whilst you are in the desert. And you have done nothing, nothing to deserve it. Who is this God? And then it goes further. He says, I will make you a great nation that other nations will look to you. So he makes a covenant with you. He gives you the Ten Commandments for you to follow and obey. And then he says, I want to build a place, a tabernacle for you to live, to meet me in, where you experience my presence. But you get frustrated. You get annoyed at your great leader, Moses, who's led you so well for such a long time. And you start to worship a golden calf. And God decides, he gets a bit angry, but then in his grace, he decides to give you another chance. Apparently, this God wants to really, wants to know you and to be known by you. And you have done nothing. You've done nothing to deserve this God. See, this God in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, describes himself as compassionate and gracious. This is what he describes himself. You've lived in a world of different gods and goddesses. And they're all so mean and so unpredictable. But this God is different. And there's nothing, nothing you've done to deserve it. And then he says his name's compassionate and gracious. Have you ever come across a word which you don't know what it means, but you try and guess the meaning of the word? I expect we've all done it sometime in our lives, and I know I've definitely done it. And we try to sound more intelligent than we are, and we say, oh, yes, I know what that means. We read a book, and we carry on. Uh, I've got a few words uh, just to play a little game with a quiz this morning. A few words, and you've got to guess what the meaning is. You're welcome to shout them out, or you can tell your someone next to you, or you can just keep it to yourself. Uh, but I've got four words. These are all official words. You might find some of them in the Oxford Dictionary, but you'll find all of them in some sort of dictionary, i.e. Google. Um, but these are all words. Here we go. Here's the word number one is phonesia. Phonesia. Does anybody ever guess what that means? Well, I'll tell you what I think it meant. When I first read it, I thought it meant that you lose your phone. You lose your phone. But actually, it means this. The inability to remember who you were calling to on the telephone when someone answered their phone. So basically, I type in my keypad a number. I'm phoning my wife, Becky. I pick up and go, uh, hi, hi, who, uh, uh. You forget who you're phoning. You phoned the person. I've had phonesia. 
You get it? You can use that one this week. Next one, disconfect. See, I was thinking something like, you know, confectionery, sweets. Maybe you don't like sweets. That's what I was going down the line. But this is what it means. To sterilize the piece of sweet you've dropped on the floor by blowing on it. Assume that this will somehow remove all the germs. So basically, you know, we do, lot, we do this. We all do this, especially kids. We disconfect it. These, these are, you know, type this in. You'll find these official terms. Next one. Blamestorming. Blaming someone else. Here we go. Let's, should, we, uh, should we go for it? Group discussion regarding the assignment of responsibility for a failure or mistake. Apparently, this is true mainly in America that they have blamestorming groups in uh, businesses that basically saying who, they find out whose fault it was. So they're not trying to find a solution. It's a blamestorming group. Oh, it's your fault. You're sacked. Apparently. It's a big phenomenon in America. Last one. Intoxication. I love this one, by the way. I absolutely love this one. Anyone got any ideas? Don't pay your taxes. Not that. Should we have a look what it says? <laughs> so this one is all about, basically, you've got a, you, got, you get a tax refund, and then you realize that it was your money in the first place. We've all been there. I've known years ago when I got a tax fund. You're like, yeah, it's got a refund of 100 pounds. And you realize it's actually your money in the first place. And you've had an intoxication moment. But, you know, check those out on Google and you will uh, see all those. And they are, in, they are in some dictionaries, they are. But this just proves a point. That when we, for words, it's so necessary to understand the meaning of the words. Because if I was to say compassionate God to you, you could think something different, very different to what I think. And often, the, your thoughts are related to your own experiences or learned behavior. But what does the Bible say about these words? Let's start off with compassionate. Actually, first, I want to say this. In Hebrew scriptures, orders matters. Order really matters. The order is the clue to what the most important. That compassionate and gracious is on top of the list, and God describing his own name means that it is the dominant one. So therefore, this is the dominant thing about what God thinks about himself. Because order matters in Hebrew scriptures. Starts off with compassionate. Compassionate is the Hebrew word rahum, which is also can be translated as merciful. And in the Old Testament, rahum is sometimes translated as merciful, sometimes translated as compassionate. They interchange uh, depending upon the, the writer. But the root Meaning of the word is female womb. The idea behind it is the, is the feeling the mother has towards her infant child. That's what they knew as compassion. It's the feeling of a mother has towards her infant child. Isaiah 49, 15 says this. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget... I will never forget you. See, the, the, the closest earthly thing God can describe his compassion towards us is to relate it to how a parent feels about a child. The love of a man and a woman 
a soldier for their country, a sports fan for their team, doesn't come close, but the closest thing is a parent for their child. It is strong, it is binding, it is powerful, and it is a relentless love for you. It is a love that would say, I will never forget you. That is what compassion is about. It is God's love for us, saying, I will never forget you. See, think about the Israelites for a moment. The Israelites, as I've already described, they have messed up big time. You know, they've messed up so much. They've worshipped other gods and goddesses, and they've done their various things, and, and they've lived in a, a time when there was lots of gods about. And then this god is saying he's compassionate, which they would have understood as, I will never forget you. This God won't let you down. This God doesn't just, just move away or whatever. He won't forget you. That's what they would have understood it to be. See, for us, this is crazily encouraging for us. See, God is like a parent that will never forget their children. And God is saying to us that he is compassionate, that he will never, never forget you. See, I think sometimes we can believe that God is a distant God. I've got this problem, where are you, God? Or we can believe that we have to beg and pester God. Or we can believe that we have to impress God. But actually, they're all lies, they're all false. Because actually, this is so far from the truth. A God, our God, isn't a distant God, but he's a close God. He isn't a God we need to pest or beg, but he's a God that wants relationship. He isn't a God that is there for us to impress, but he's actually a God for us, is there for us just to be. See, this God, which is our God, is compassionate towards you. And therefore, he will never forget you. He is like a parent towards a child. So if compassion is a feel word, gracious is an action word. In the Hebrew, it's hanun, which means to show grace, to show favor. It's something you do. It's the idea behind it. It's, it's to help you in your time of need. Grace means he, it will come and rescue you. There's an action to it. God is saying that I will be gracious towards you. In your time of need, I will come and help you. It's something that he is doing. And there's loads of times throughout the Bible that these pop up. But I just want to pick up two things that it does pop up in. And the first one is Exodus 22, uh, verses 26 to 27. And it says this. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And, he, it, and it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. It can be quite a confusing passage, but what he's saying here is that grace has to do with basically interest rates on a loan. It is justice for the poor. Grace, in this passage, is a coat 
that will keep you warm at night. The same again, 2 Kings 13, 22 to 23. Now, Hazal, the king of Aram, has oppressed on Israel all the days of Joaz. But the Lord was gracious to them, and he had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and would not destroy them and to cast them from his presence until now. See here, grace is saving Israel from annihilation from a foreign army. It was the war of defense around them. In this passage, grace is about a defense around them. God's grace is a defense around us. See, if compassion is like a parent feels for a child, grace is like a, is like a parent coming to rescue their child in a time of need. It's an action word. It's a doing word. See, the Israelites, they would have got this. Because when they were in desperate need, when they were in slavery, fear, and bondage in Egypt, they saw a God send someone called Moses and saw a God deliver them out of uh, Egypt towards the promised land. They would have known the compassion and they would have seen the grace of God. See, often we would want to make grace a principle or a subject or a concept. We like to work it out in our mind. But really, grace is a person. Grace is a person we can relate to. And Jesus is the personification of grace. Because he was the one that came to help us in our time of need. This is what Ephesians 2 says. In the past, you were spiritually dead because of your disobedience and sin. At the time, you followed the world's evil way. You obeyed the ruler of the spiritual powers in space, the spirit who now controls the people who disobey God. Actually, all of us were like them and lived according to our natural desires, doing whatever suited and wishes of our own bodies and minds. In our natural condition, we, like everyone else, were destined to suffer God's anger. But God's mercy is so abundant. His love is for us is so great that while we were spiritually dead in our disobedience, he brought us to life with Christ. It is by God's grace you have been saved. See, this is the thing. The gospel of grace doesn't make bad people good people. It doesn't work like that. But the gospel of grace makes spiritually dead people alive. And there's a difference. It doesn't make bad people good people, but it makes spiritually dead people alive. And this is what Paul is saying in this Ephesians passage. I love this quote by John, uh, John Piper. He says this, You are more sinful than you think you are. But you are more loved than you think you are. He is saying that, your sin is so great, you don't even realize how big it is in your life. However, you are more loved than you think you are, more than you can imagine. See, then I think about my life, and we remember about that we don't deserve God's help. Each one of us has fallen short. We've made mistakes. We've all said the wrong thing. We've thought the wrong things. We've had wrong motives. We've not seen people as God sees them. And we, we, are, we have fallen short, but we carry on falling short. 
And God's grace is something you don't deserve. But God delights to give it to you. So when when I was preparing for this, I felt God say this, that, that his grace says that I made you different. I made you different. Because of God's grace, you can be who God's called you to be. You don't need to strive to be like someone else. You don't need to be the same as the person next to you. You don't need to think, I wish I had their life. Because God has called you to be different. And he's called me to be different. And because we are all different, and that's the way God has called us to be, that is all grace at work in many ways. I made you different. He made me different. Let's think about the story of Jonah. I absolutely love the story of Jonah. Uh, We all probably know Jonah, the guy in the whale for three days. Um, You know, who else would want to experience that? If if you knew you were going to come out in three days, would anybody else want to experience being in the whale for three days? No, okay. I think it would be quite good. If I exactly knew, because it's mind, isn't it? It would be your mind. I would, I would find it quite interesting. If I definitely, definitely knew I'd come out, I'd be there. Um, see, the opening line of Jonah, well, the second opening line, it says this to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And so Jonah has been called to go to Nineveh because of their wickedness. Nineveh was the capital of the Asian Empire. Asian, uh, uh, sorry, the um, Assyrian Empire, sorry. The Assyrians were the most dominant and the biggest empire in the time of history. And their enemy was Israel. They'd been at war with Israel on and off for centuries. The Ninevites, they were evil people. There was reports that the Ninevites would skin people alive. Just think about that for a minute. Maybe not too long. It's a disgusting thought. But they would skin you alive. Nineveh was not a place you would choose to go on holiday. It was definitely not the place you would want to go and tell people about Jesus. And furthermore, it wouldn't be a place you would want to go and plant a church. So what does Jonah do? He legs it, as many of us are aware. He goes in the opposite direction. Because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He basically goes to our Timbuktu. And the story goes on, uh, and he's on the boat, and then he gets thrown overboard. He goes into the whale, he lives there for three days, and as it goes on, he somehow he ends up in Nineveh because of what God's done in his life and work on his heart. But then he goes to Nineveh, and he says this to the people, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is kind of funny, because can you imagine him can you imagine yourself going to a city? So let's just say, for example, you go to Turkey. Get over to Turkey, and then um, you have to say, 40 more days and you will be overthrown. This isn't like a nice three-point sermon or anything like we try and do. Or it's not a cute story. Or he doesn't even try to contextualize it. What he does, he just basically says, 40 days and you will be dead. That's what he's telling them. You know, God's going to kill you. You know, he's straight to the point. But this is where it gets amazing. Shockingly, 
Nineveh repents. They turn away from their God. They turn away from their violence, their injustice. And they worship the Lord Yahweh. Even the king repents and he declares a day of mourning. And this is what happens next, Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they did, they turned from their evil ways. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So God was like, well, I'm not going to destroy him anymore. But he used this word, relented. And in the Hebrew, this is what it means. God changed his mind. He went back on his decision. God responds. God was going to get rid of the Ninevites. He was going to kill them. But he showed them so much grace that they didn't deserve. And actually, the city went on and enjoyed a, a long life, if you read throughout the Bible. See, you would think at this point in time, Jonah would explode. Yes! My mission is completed. They've turned away from their gods. They've turned away from their evil. They've accepted Yahweh as the one and true God. But he doesn't do that. This is what he does. He says this. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. He's saying, I knew this was going to happen. I knew the people would turn their ways. He's like, I knew this was going to happen, God. Jonah is mad. He's livid. He goes on to say this. I knew you were gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Have you noticed? He's quoting Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. He says, I know that you're that God. He goes, I know that you would have relented. I know that you would uh, take away their calamity. Uh, he goes, I know that. And it's caused him to be mad and livid. Because, and this is why, he's like, I, I want you to be gracious and compassionate towards me. But towards other evil people, you shouldn't be doing that, God. And he preferred to die than it for it to happen. This is crazy. See, he thought that God's compassion and grace was just for him, was just for the people of Israel, and just for upright people, good people. But actually, it's for his enemies as well, those who are violent, those who are different from me. See, the thing with God, he has a track record to bless people that are our enemies. He does. See, we have one life. We have one life. And I think one of the biggest things we can do with our life is to show compassion and grace. Why? Because that's the biggest thing God did in our life. That is, I think, honestly, think it's one of the biggest, because that is the top of the list. Top of the list in that passage, compassion and grace. And that's what he's done for us. And therefore, one of the biggest things we can do with our lives is to show compassion and grace in every area of life that we meet with people. Whether that is in our home and show compassion and grace to our husband and wives, to our kids, to our mother, to our father, to our, to our grandparents. Whether that is in our workplaces, our next door neighbor, 
going to get some petrol, whatever that is, to show compassion and grace is a powerful message. Because we've been shown compassion and grace by a loving God. See, how we, how we think about people, how we treat people, makes a difference, not just in their lives, but in our lives too. It does make a difference in our lives. Exodus 34 isn't just a ground zero theology of God, of understanding who God is. It's a manifesto of how God's people should do life. It's a manifesto. It isn't just about who God is. It's then, this is what we should do to others. God is compassionate, so we to be compassionate. God is gracious, so we should be gracious. This is what God does to us. Therefore, we should show it to others. We've got a God who is compassionate towards you. He's compassionate towards you, like a parent to their infant child. His love is so relentless towards you. It's so relentless towards you. It's, it's, we can't fully understand. We can't fathom of how much he loves you. And his grace, his grace has come. And he's gracious towards you. He desires to rescue you. And at that moment uh, when Jesus died and resurrected, that was the pinnacle moment of when he fully rescued us from death to life. He made us spiritually, we were spiritually dead and he made us spiritually alive. But actually, he shows grace to us every day. He rescues us in times of situations, in times of hard situations. Our God is compassionate and gracious towards us. See, tomorrow, you're going to go and do your thing. You know, your thing, Monday morning thing. Whether that's, you know, you're doing the kids, you're going to work, you're doing the school, or you're going to do some cleaning, whatever it looks like, you're doing your Monday morning thing. You know, we're, we're quite predictable creatures in many ways, and we all have the same routine, not the same routine, we, have, we each of us have the same, our own routines. But this is where we've got to live it out. This is where we've got to live it out. See, we've got to know, not just know God is compassionate and gracious, we've got to live it out. See, you might be thinking, well, I don't feel loved. I don't feel the compassion of God. And I don't see the grace of God. I don't see him helping my time of need. But I want to say this. I believe that this is the truth. That what I read in here is the truth. So it isn't God's problem. It's probably my problem. If God is all loving, it's me thinking it and having faith in it. Does that, does that make sense? Because if this is the truth, that God is compassionate and gracious, when I wake up tomorrow morning, I don't feel that he loves me. Who, who's got the problem? Is it me or him? Is he not showing it? Or is it me not receiving it and wanting to believe it? It's actually me. Because I am not living in faith that I believe what the Bible says about me. It isn't that God's not showing it towards me, because I believe God is showing it towards me. I believe this is the truth. So actually, I believe that God is compassionate. So tomorrow morning, as I wake up, I will believe that I am loved, and I will have the faith to know that I am loved, and I'm cared for, and that he, he, nothing can separate me from his love, that he has compassion towards me. Because the disconnect is not him, it's me. 
And it's the same with grace. You've got you've to live in faith that this is the truth. Because I think too many times we say, well, I don't feel love. You know, I don't feel that compassion. Or I don't see God helping my time of need. I really don't think the problem is on God's side. Because this is the truth. And it's us believing it and living in faith. And getting up and saying, I am loved. I know that the grace of God has come through me. And that through Jesus I am forgiven. But also every day God helps me in my time of need. Our God is compassionate and gracious towards us. He is compassionate and gracious towards us. And that is such a great encouragement for us. It helps us in our everyday life. But the challenge is to live it out. It's the faith to live it out. And to know this is the truth. I wonder what you see the world like. You know, what, what, what is your glasses, the world? Do you, is this your lens to see the world? Because if this is your lens to see the world, you won't get very far. But if this was the lens you see the world, you would filter it through the truth of the Bible. That you are loved. That God has rescued you in your time of need. And then you will go and show it to others. Compassion and grace to a world. And don't we live in a time when a world needs a church and a people that show them compassion and grace. Compassion and grace. I was talking to someone the other day, and they were doing some work, and they said 50% of their clients are, um, are, are 50% of their clients either have anxiety or depression. I don't want to tell you too much detail, but 50% have anxiety or depression. You know, this is the world we live in. And they need people to show them compassion and grace and tell them about a God who's compassionate and gracious. He will help you in your time of need. He loves you. But we need to put the glasses on to know that this is the truth. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are so compassionate towards us. And that you love us like an, a, a parent loves their infant child. But I thank you also, your grace is so good to us. You come in our time of need to help us every day. And Father, I pray that we would live it out. That we would uh, believe this truth. That we would put the lens of the word of God, the truth of God in front of us. And Father God, I just pray, Lord, that this tomorrow that you'll help us to remember this. And have the faith to live it out. That you are for us. And I pray against the work of Satan. As he would try and push us back. He would try and put other thoughts in our mind. And we just pray the rebuking of Satan in Jesus' name. And that our minds will be filled with the truth and the word of God. By the spirit of God we pray this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing one song. But if you would like prayer, we do want to offer prayer, don't we, Dave? Um, so if you, if you would like prayer, there'll be a prayer ministry team at the back. And just about today, maybe you want to be reminded of God's love for you. You know, do come and pray. Or maybe some of the prophetic words this morning has spoken to you. Uh, you know, do come and receive prayer. Please.
Jesus Christ.